The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome, boys and girls, to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, the beast from the... I want to say Middle East, but you don't have a rag on your head or nothing. Midwest. Yeah, whatever. Tammy, the Sasquatch Underwood, say Gur Tam. Hi, everybody. All right, boys and girls. Today we got actually a really special guest. It's it's you guys have heard me talk about him yeah, on the we show talk about him a lot, a lot, man. And I dig this guy. His name is Brian Engel. And Brian, you find fucking things that my researchers can't even find, which just amazes me. Yeah, because if I can't find it, usually it's not out there, but damn, you impress me. <laughs> I'm just yeah, saying. how you guys doing? We're good. How are you today? I'm not bad. Just on my way into work. I got you guys in my earbuds. This is, uh, I'm pretty excited about this. It's kind of cool. Yeah, we're you, kind of excited to have you on, too. You sound like you have a southern draw, though. Where are you from originally? Yo, I've been hearing that my entire life. I was born and raised in Sacramento, California. Oh, shit. Like, I, I picked up on the Southern accent. Is I, he from I, my I, home in Georgia? I heard a hint of it, too, and I didn't want to say anything because I was like, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Georgia <laughs> is the main one that people think I'm from, actually. Um, me and my family haven't been able to figure out where this came from. I'm the only one in my family who's got this whole draw to me. You don't have a um, head injury, do you? <laughs> No, he's not like you. <laughs> dropped on your head as a baby. I've, no, I just I dropped rocks on my head as a baby. So <laughs> I'm just saying because sometimes the head injuries it, it can happen. But yeah, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I mean, I, it, it, Are you saying it is that, a good possibility for me too? I have cracked my head open about seven times throughout. I my think life, that. So. I think she's saying that those of us who are from the South are retarded. No, no that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> what I'm saying is sometimes with a head injury, you can pick up, you will, you will take on a different accent, like English or Scottish or Southern. It's happened, Scott. Oh, my God. There's documented cases. You know what? I don't like you anymore, Scott. That's it. You're I can't help it. You're yeah. dumb. Oh. <laughs> Your IQ is duh. <laughs> you see, you, you see. You I know, get... the, part that's actually, the part that's actually dangerous for me is. When I'm around people who do have accents, I unconsciously have a tendency to mimic them. Oh, like, yeah. It's something I can't control. It just happens. Like, it's really weird. It's yeah, my son very, says very I very do weird. the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, when I go to a Chinese restaurant or a Mexican restaurant, my son says, Tammy, Mom, that's so bad. I go, I, I don't even know what I'm doing because I grew up in a Korean household. So, you know, it's like, it just happens. Yep. All right, let's get into the starved, starved rock murders. And Brian, you know how this works, so let's let Tammy do her thing, then we'll give our yeah. commentary. Yeah, there you go. Okay, yes, so sir. Okay, so over the past couple of years, we have actually covered a wide variety of cases. Um, some of them are extremely brutal and heinous, where we... Eat- where even we call the perpetrators a monster beyond understanding. I mean, for instance, there was Fred and Rosemary West and Craig Price. Um, you know, Scott's favorite people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's because I don't like anybody who hurts kids, man. Yeah. It's, it's the whole kid. And here's my thing. Like, if, if, if somebody kills another adult, okay, I go, you know what? That's fucked up. And what they did was fucked up. But it's an adult. But kids, old people, and hookers. Yeah. God damn. The, the, super victimized. Yeah. Totally. 
and I don't even really like children. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. There are some kids that are pretty awesome. Yeah, you love my nephew. Your nephew is freaking <laughs> rocking because I'm his number one fan, and he's my number one fan, which mm-hmm. is awesome. He loves you. <laughs> and then we found some that we've been in the same – had we been in the same situation, we don't know if we would have done things differently, like Joshua Phillips or Daniel Coverbassage. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, those are the ones that were abused so bad that, I mean, Joshua Phillips didn't know what to do when he hurt that girl because he wasn't supposed to have her over, you know. And then Daniel Coverbatch just killed his his uh, his abuser. And then there have also been some in, in which we have questioned the guilt of the accused, just like, like with Charles Anthony Boyd, remember? He was recently... Oh, he was the yeah, one yeah. that um, we think his brother actually did it. Remember, right? He, he's the he, he's the black dude who's like he, he's like retarded. Yeah, his he was he was legally deemed you know retarded. Yes, and I hate that word, but that's the legal term. Uh, he is. He's that, I, okay. As I said before, man, like I call my friends retards. Yeah, I know, but I'm not gonna look at somebody who has like downs or something and go freaking retard because that's that's a dick move, man. Yeah, totally. But yeah, but the legal term for his, you know, for his IQ level is legally retarded. And then there's Darlie Routier. Remember the one that we think uh, Tommy Lynn Sells killed her boys? Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the, the yeah. demo is the same and it was the same. Uh, exactly. Time, time, time frame, t- same area, all that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then as I researched this case, I was torn between two perspectives. The accused was actually a brutal monster because of the heinous crime. Or the accused is an innocent scapegoat. Because uh, approximately 63 years ago, in March of 1960, three friends from the suburbs of Chicago took a brief trip to Starved Rock State Park. It's a national park near Utica, Illinois. Now, typically known for the natural beauty and wonder of the region, on March 14, 1960, Starved Rock was the scene of one of the most shocking crimes in the history of Illinois. After an extensive manhunt, uh, the authorities arrested a man who already had a criminal record, and the conviction was swift. Now, some people say the punishment was just. However, there's another group of people that insist the convicted perpetrator was merely a scapegoat railroaded by a system desperate to convince the community they were safe. Did you know some of my neighbors have goats? I don't even want to know. They're like, for real. Oh, oh, do they really? Yeah, go from P Street. I know. Is that fucking... See, I'm, I'm, I'm really retarded. This is why my brain goes... If you go uh, up to P Street, like you're going over to SR500, and look off to the right-hand side, they got yeah. goats. So if you're headed south or north on P? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, they got like three freaking goats there. Now, here are the fa- definitive facts on this case. The authorities arrested Chester Weger and took him in for questioning. He's guilty. Anybody with the name of Chester. <laughs> Chester Because I think, no, I think Chester the molester. You know what? We had a guy in my, the town I grew up in in Iowa that we really called <laughs> Well, we called him that and Cheesy Rider because he rode around on his bicycle with a banana seat and the big old handlebars up, you know, like oh back God. in the day. <laughs> I want and one of those slow riders. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, dude, that, wouldn't that be freaking awesome? I, I wouldn't have it on, a, on my motorcycle, but on a bicycle? That's freaking awesome. Yeah, he had the, it was really weird. Now, he was, during his interrogation. He Brian and I have goals now. <laughs> I know you do. Fist <laughs> <laughs> committing the crime. And number three is Chester was convicted in a court of law. Now, despite all that, many in the region and around the nation feel Chester is innocent. There's actually a Facebook page 
called Friends of Chester Rieger. Each has their own theory about what truly happened. Some theories are so extreme and not so believable. However, there are some that don't defy possibility and may even venture into the realm of probability. So let me tell you the story and let you decide for yourself. Um, now, there's a legend behind Starved Rock. According to historical records, the St. Louis Canyon region of the Midwest was settled by several Native American tribes. Um, now, according to this, one of, um, one of the tribes, their, lead, their warrior Pontiac was killed by um, some... Ugh, was he killed in the Battle of Grand Am? No, shut up. Anyways, Pontiac was killed by some pe- some of the uh, some members of the Illinois Confederation or the Illinois tribe. Now, when their leader was murdered, the Ottawa warriors gathered warriors from their allies and sought out to avenge Pontiac's death. Now, um, what they did is they surrounded a small band of Illinois warriors, which some claim it was actually a hunting group. Because they were a peaceful tribe. Now, they found themselves outnumbered, so they sought refuge on the butte. And rather than retreating, the revenge-seeking pursuers surrounded the rock, which limited supplies and no means to get more. So that group at the top eventually starved to death, hence the name Starved Rock. Um, I know, isn't that crazy? That's, it's an old <laughs> tactic, man. I don't know if you guys are history buffs. But, Not really, but um, no. there, there, There's been se- several battles that have been fought the same way. Uh, yeah. Everything from uh, battles that happened in Scotland and, and throughout the UK. Um, and uh, it, even the Greeks, my peoples, did that, where they would, they would surround whatever... Your people are savages. Yeah, they are. <laughs> but they would... Cut off the supply and wait for them to die. Yeah, and that's exactly what, what like, because, you know, uh, I, I don't know if, if, if you know this, Brian, but my family is actually from Sparta and from uh, Knossos in Greece. Sparta. Uh, yeah. Boys. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the, but that's what they would do. Outside of, you know, slaughtering everybody and taking slaves, they would surround a place and cut off all their supplies. So no food coming in. Guess what? You're going to give up pretty fucking quick, man. So... So, so, you're, so, Scott, I've got a question real quick. How many yeah. people have you kicked into a pit? Um, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I mean, have you kicked into a pit? <laughs> I was going to say, Scott's from the land of war- savages, and I'm from the land of hookers and heroin. <laughs> That's because you are a hooker. You keep working up on Sandy Boulevard. I told you, you don't have to do that. Just come to work. That's all you got to do. Do I? I think he's talking to somebody there. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So Sorry, I'm at, I just got on my job site, so you're over here and other people with my bad. Uh, it's all good. So according to the official rocker reports, though, the following events led up to the gruesome discovery. Now, three Riverside Presbyterian church members and friends left their affluent homes on March 12, 1960, to embark on a four-day excursion to Starve Rock Park. The three women were 53-year-old, Scott's going to hate this because they have long-ass names, Mildred, Monica, Emma, Lindquist. That's retarded. <laughs> Fucking retarded. 50-year-old Lillian Isabel Oding and 47-year-old Frances Harriet Murphy, and she went by Frankie. They were excited to be taking their trip. Lillian was especially excited to have some time away with her friends because she had spent the past few months nursing her husband back to health after he had a heart attack. Now, law enforcement interview records indicate employees at Starved Rock Lodge remembered the three women arriving on the first day of their trip. 
Frances had driven her two friends to the park in her gray station wagon, and then she parked it out in front of the lodge, grabbed their luggage, and registered at the front desk. They dropped their bags off in their room, then headed to the dining room to have lunch. After they finished eating, they encountered a staff member and talked about how beautiful the day was, even though there was still snow on the ground. So they thought it was perfect for a hike in the canyon. Then they were seen walking away from the lodge, carrying only a small pair of binoculars and a camera heading into the St. Louis Canyon of Starved Rock. Since the hiking path still had a light covering of snow that early spring, they were all wearing their rubber boots. Now, (laughs) Scott, rubber boots. I'm not even going to go there. because (laughs) That's a long story, but yeah. (laughs) Following along the path, they were seen taking... There were several places where later evidence indicated they could possibly have periodically stopped to take pictures because they're, you know, they developed the film in the camera of each other until they arrived at the dead end of St. Louis Canyon where there's a huge waterfall. And it was probably, it was most likely frozen at the time and it's surrounded by deep, uh, steep rocky walls approximately one mile from the front doors of the lodge. At that point, the authorities theorized Lillian was holding the camera. It appears as if she wasn't familiar with the device, since once the film and the camera was developed, there were some random shots of the surrounding surrounding area. That Doesn't looked, sound like they were random. What was happening in that hotel room? That's my question. This wasn't in the hotel. This was in the canyon. No, this is this is before the canyon. In the You're hotel so room, dumb. two girls, three girls. But oh, okay, even better, man. Anyway, I can't write today. I keep typoing. Around the area that looked as if they were okay. taken as she was trying, yeah, <laughs> trying to get she her friends shit in while the we're doing frame. the show instead of doing it. You know, no, I was updating it because I misspelled a word. Shut up. When she was finished snapping the photos, evidence indicates the three women turned around to leave, but they never made it out of the canyon. Now, according to reports, the first indication something wasn't right happened later that first evening. When Lillian left her house, she promised her husband, George, she would call him once she was settled in her room. When he didn't receive her call, he tried calling her at the lodge. The employee working the front desk told George his wife was not in her room because the three women had left and weren't back yet. The employee said that they would give Lillian the message and, and he had called and she would most likely call him the next morning. He wasn't, so he wasn't that worried. He hung up and went, you know, went to bed. When Lillian didn't call on the morning of March 13th, George, again worried, called the lodge and requested to be put through to his wife's room. The employee at the desk told him his wife and friends were seen earlier in the dining room for breakfast and must be out of the lodge at the moment because they weren't in their rooms. Not aware that the employee was actually mistaken, George again hung up and thinking his wife was just having fun. Later that night, an early spring snowstorm actually struck the Illinois Valley and the roads leading in and out of the park were virtually impassable due to the near blizzard conditions that continued all night long. So by morning, the canyon where the three friends were hiking was covered with a blanket of snow that was approximately three feet deep. Um, So that blanket of snow actually wiped out any, you know, bloodstains, footprints and other potential evidence. Now, on March 14th, when he when George still hadn't heard from Lillian, he again called the lodge asking to speak to his wife. The employee answering the phone tried a room, but when there was no response, they told George that three women could not be located. Concerned, he insisted a staff member go into the rooms to check things out because he hadn't heard from his wife in three days. No, that makes sense. Like on a, yeah. on a serious note, like if, if that happened to like, let's say like, uh, I don't know, anybody I knew like Dawn or something like that, I'd be like, hey, go check the fucking room, dude. Not me though, huh? 
No, you're a Sasquatch. You're used <laughs> to bad conditions. You, you know, I found you up in the forest, so. <laughs> Whatever, dude. If you don't hear from me in a, in a day, once I go to Iowa, you better be calling me because I either killed somebody or I'm in jail. <laughs> Just saying. Now, an employee entered the room and discovered the luggage had not even been unpacked and the beds had not been slept in. They went to the parking lot and discovered Francis's vehicle had not been moved from the place where she parked it on the first day. Now, when this information relayed to George, he was overcome with shock, especially since he came to the sudden realization that the three women had not been seen for over 40 hours. Brian, you still with us? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Sorry. No, it got quiet. I I worried. I'm like, Uh, (laughs) Brian got abducted by space aliens in freaking (laughs) California, or even worse, he got abducted by Californians in California. And uh, that's scary. Uh, and he's now being pro. Please, Scott, don't remind me that I'm here. <laughs> you don't want to know that you're still in California? <laughs> oh, no. I can relate no, to that. No, no. I'd cause... prefer to know that I was anywhere else. Oh, believe me. I can relate because remember you and I were talking before. Is I, I lived in, in SoCal for, for quite a while. That's where I went to college and everything like that. And, yeah, I love it up here. <laughs> oh, God. It's getting nightmarish out here. Oh, shit, yeah. All right, Squatch, go ahead. Now, when George hung up from the lodge, he immediately placed a call to Virgil Peterson, his friend and the executive director of the Chicago Crime Commission. Now, actually, Virgil Peterson's going to come up in another case I'm doing, so, you know, keep him in mind. As soon as Virgil learned what was happening, he contacted several law enforcement agencies and the Illinois State Police. Within a matter of minutes, Sheriff Ray, you're going to love this name, Utsi, of LaSalle That's County. not a real name. You're making this yeah, shit up. No, I'm not, actually. Nobody is named Utsi. What the fuck? E-U-T-S-E-Y. I'm not lying. That's no cop with that. You can't take a cop like that. Sarah. Seriously. Like, if he pulls you over, you go, what's your name? Officer Utsi? You know what? I'm just going to drive off because you're not a real person. I'm, I'm out of here. You know, I was literally... I was arrested by an officer whose last name was Pyo. P-Y-L-E. <laughs> I'm not lying. But anyways, I digress. Of LaSalle County organized several search parties to spread out around the park to look for any sign of the women. Then he himself joined one of the groups. Local reporter Bill Danley was finishing his article for the newspaper that evening when he received a call about the disappearance of the three friends. He quickly grabbed his camera and drove the snow-covered roads to the state park, and as soon as he pulled into the entrance, he saw a young boy sprinting over the ice-covered ravine um, heading towards the road. He continued to drive the narrow path until he reached a small pull-off where several other young boys were shouting something about bodies being found on a on a train trail into the camp. <laughs> Told you I'm, I make spelling errors. It's disgusting. It's because I type so fast. Uh, he realized the boys were from the Illinois Youth Commission Forestry Camp, which it was a youth detention center in the area. Now, he recognized some of them because he actually led an explorer post at the facility in the past. He pulled, over to, he pulled them over to a storage building out of the way of the traffic and asked them what was going on. As soon as the boys told Bill the bodies had been discovered, he placed a call to the Star of Rock Lodge to verify the information with the authorities who were gathered there. With confirmation, his next call was to his newspaper to report the findings, and he is actually world-renowned for breaking the story nationally. Um, now, he accompanied law enforcement officials into the canyon. They actually let him go down in there with them and was one of the first people to see the bodies of the three women. They were lying on the ground, their bodies partially concealed with covering snow, side by side. 
Two of the women were actually bound together with some heavy twine, and all of them were found on their backs beneath a small rock ledge. Their clothing from the waist down was torn off, and their legs were left spread open. All three of them had obviously been bludgeoned over the head. Their bodies were covered with blood, and their legs were covered with bruises. Somebody didn't do caveman style correctly. <laughs> You're so dumb. A short time later, detectives from the state police arrived and began their search for evidence in the area. Now, save for the area under the lot ledge where the women's bodies were, the canyon had approximately six inches of snow blanketing the area still. Their law, law enforcement officials had to meticulously melt the snow to look for any clues that might tell them what had happened. Now, I've seen the pictures. They actually take these weird, I don't like flame things and like melt, like wave it over the snow to melt it. It was really weird. Now, as they got rid of the fine white powder, I, I even wrote poser. See, I told you. I need a flamethrower the more I'm thinking about it. Spider season's upon us. I know. So they uncovered evidence indicating the women and their attacker had engaged in a violent struggle. The camera, later determined to belong to Francis, was located under the snow approximately 10 feet from the bodies. It was tucked inside its case with blood smeared across the leather outside and the strap was broken. Now that's important to know too. A little further away, the binoculars were found. They too were covered in blood. Now, close to where the camera and binoculars were, Harlan Warren, the state attorney for LaSalle County, found a frozen blood-streaked tree limb. Upon closer inspection, the snow underneath the limb was covered with so much blood, officials believed it was likely the weapon used to bludgeon the three women. As detectives continued to remove the snow, they found a bloody trail that led to their theory that the three friends were killed further into the canyon and the murderer dragged their bodies to where they were found under the ledge. Well, at least he's hardworking. Right. I mean, he's well, not just leaving bodies willy-nilly. Right. So because of the extreme conditions of the road leading into the park, it took hours before officials from the state crime lab and the pathologist to arrive on the scene. As a result, these bodies remained out in the open that whole time. Which can destroy evidence. Yeah, but it makes them frozen food. So, That's true. There you go. <laughs> You're so stupid. They ain't going nowhere. They're, they're well preserved. Yeah. So they weren't carried out on stretchers until well into the night, and they had to use flashlights and lanterns to aid in the process. So once the bodies were removed from the park, they were taken to a funeral home where the autopsies were conducted. According to official pathologist reports, the medical examiner said it was clear the three women had been molested in some manner. However, because of the extreme cold and limited forensic technology of the area, I mean era, not area, he couldn't definitively say they had been raped. I have a complaint. <laughs> what? I've been in the woods many times hunting and fishing. And I nobody's have, raped you? I've never been raped or molested. <laughs> I'm sorry. I put my foot down, man. <laughs> Ladies, come and meet me at the park. Beam me up in Ladies, the Ladies, you know you want a man to do it. Oh, stop it. <laughs> You're such a silly bitch. Jesus Christ. I'll scratch your eyes out, I hard. know you will. <laughs> Just keep on believing, Scott. Just keep on believing. <laughs> no. Don't stop believing. <laughs> Thank you for not ruining it. No. <laughs> However, he could determine they had been killed not long after they finished having lunch in the lodge dining room. Now, in... Investigators found nothing at the crime scene to indicate the motivation behind the attack. However, they could rule out robbery. Other than Francis's camera, the three women had left all of their valuables in their luggage, except for the jewelry they were wearing and their wedding rings, which were very valuable because they were from affluent families. Now, the only clues the authorities found at the scene were the branch, the camera, the binoculars, and the bodies. 
although there was a significant amount of blood, they didn't have the technology at the time to analyze it. Therefore, they had nothing to go on, really. That didn't stop people from coming up with their own theories. The investigation also came to a standstill when the Illinois State Police and the LaSalle County Sheriff's Department fought over which agency had jurisdiction in the case. Nobody argued the fact that technically, State's Attorney Warren was in charge. However, the county sheriff said it was their case because the murder occurred in their county. The state police argued it was their case because the murders were committed on state park property. Now, Warren had to decide which agency he wanted to work with. So although he was respected in LaSalle County official and would probably have preferred working with the local sheriff, he was in somewhat of a bind. So in the long run, because of the resources they had, he had to choose the state police to lead the investigation. Um, mainly also because the county actually lacked experience dealing with a crime of that magnitude. They never really dealt with a murder in that county before. So with the obvious leads to follow, the investigation barely went forward. However, the fear ran through the region like a Pacific Northwest wildfire. Hardly hardware stores across Illinois sold out of deadbolts because people who had never locked their door in the past no longer wanted to take the chance. And sporting goods and gun shops, sporting goods stores and gun shops suddenly had empty display cases and alarmingly low inventory because people felt the need to arm themselves against any danger. I think we should all be armed. And legged. And legged. You need legs, too. <laughs> You're so stupid. It's too early. Now, Starfrock Rock Lodge experienced guest cancellations to the point they virtually had nobody staying overnight. In fact, travelers would go miles out of the way so they didn't have to drive anywhere near the entrance of the canyon. And media didn't help matters in the least either. We all know they're not that great. They consistently ran reports on the investigation's lack of progress, which enhanced the fear. Right? Now, despite the fact that we're elevating the public's fear, there was a noticeable benefit on the ongoing media. Um, It kept pressure on law enforcement to move forward in their investigation, and no one in an official capacity worked harder than Harlan Warren. He did everything he could to move forward. He wasn't only trying to solve the (laughs) the most heinous crime in the region, it was also an election year. So he was having difficulty coping with the pressures that went along with all of it. They should elect me. (laughs) No, no, they shouldn't. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Since investigating the triple homicide was still a top priority, the cost of the investigation kept going up. So he was also facing a funding problem. As the year progressed and there was no end to the pressure the public was placing on him, it became so taxing he became frustrated with the critics. He felt he had taken their criticism regarding the investigation and their blame for the perpetrator not being arrested. He, keep in mind, he wasn't an investigator. He wasn't even a police officer. He was an attorney. And they expected him to solve this crime. So in other words, it wasn't fair for the public to pressure him to solve the crime and make an arrest. He was just the guy who was responsible for convincing the jury their suspect was guilty. Never underestimate the power of human stupidity. That's true, too. That's true, especially in the Midwest. It's like asking the garbage man to clean your toilet. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. Don't get me started on the Midwest, either. <laughs> I mean, we all know what Iowa stands for. Sorry. Now, however, Warren decided he would, also, he would just take another look at the case and, uh, that they had up until that point, the evidence. He approached his task as if he were looking at the case files for the first time, and he started at the beginning. As he poured through the f- slim file, he suddenly had an epiphany. There was something that, that they murder actually left at the crime scene. And since they didn't have DNA technology, he was looking for some type of physical evidence. He found his answer when he s- found the section of twine. 
Now, the killer had used it to bind two of the women to each other, and it was such an obvious answer, it was, but it was as if the other detectives felt it was too obvious, so they dismissed it. No, I know, right? Told Once you, again, never Midwest. underestimate. <laughs> Midwest for you. Now, um, Warren knew the county was already struggling to allocate money to continue funding the investigation, but he needed equipment they did not have to analyze the evidence. He knew if he put in a requisition asking for the funds, there would be one of two outcomes. His request would be denied, or it would take forever before he received the equipment. But he knew he had to take a closer look at that twine. So he, and then I go, the DA, quasi-homicide detective, knew if he wanted to solve this case, he had to take matters into his own hands and cut out the middleman, so to speak. So he took his own money and went out and bought a high-quality microscope. Then he began analyzing the evidence himself. Hang tight. What year was this happening? 1960. Okay, it's back in the 60s. Okay. Yeah. I probably, you probably said that, but I probably I missed it. because a couple you know, of times, but that's okay. Deaf, and I'm half fucking I know. retarded, and I need I know. more coffee. I know. Fucking dog jumped on my goddamn bed, took up all the fucking dog. room. I had Dawn snoring in my ear, and the dog breathing her rancid breath in my face. Good times. Good Did she talk times. out loud like I do? No, <laughs> but she doesn't really snort. She really doesn't. But then, then uh, occasionally she fucking she's like a goddamn chainsaw trying to cut through a fucking piece of rock. Right. I used to say my mom before she had her CPAP machine sound like a sick Harley. <laughs> Your mom is a perfect angel. So Shut up. I don't even really want to hear that shit from her. Yeah. From you. As he looked at the frayed ends of the twine, he counted the number. He decided he was going to count the number of strands and discovered there were thirty-two. However, there was something odd about the cord he held in his hands. He just couldn't place his finger on it. Then when he took a closer look, he discovered it was actually two types of twine woven together. The killer had taken a 20-ply cord and wove it together with a 12-ply to strengthen it. Now, he knew he had found a critical piece of evidence that might be the answer to solving the murders. He also knew he couldn't follow up the lead himself without drawing the attention of the media, which could compromise the case, right? Because back then, they didn't have protocols for that. Right, right, right. I mean, we've talked about how media and everything has gone in and, you know, damaged evidence before. I, I don't like regular, like, mainstream media to begin with because... Right. Well, and this is uh, the 60s, before they became so intrusive. They're all not. You know, because that happened in 1968, and I actually know the turning point, but that's a long story, too. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I was just thinking about today's <laughs> media. Where oh, yeah, I know. De- it depends on your political affiliation of, of who you're going <laughs> to bitch about. You know, it depends on which station you're listening to, because one is extremely right and the others are all extremely left. Yeah, no, that's that's why there's no in the middle anymore. So I don't watch the news anymore. I miss Walter Cronkite. That's the news and good night. (laughs) You know what I miss? What? Never mind. Thank you. I was going to make a mom joke that I'm going to be nice this morning. However, he also didn't want anybody from the state's attorney's office looking into it either. He knew he had to be discreet. So he he actually went, instead of going to the state police, he went to the sheriff's office and handpicked two detectives. They were Wayne Hess and Bill Dumit. Did they have good hands? It's either dumb it or doom it, but I'm going to say doom it because I don't want to say dumb it all all episode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Shut up. It reminds me of that, that, that one commercial. <laughs> I'm a yeah, doomish. <laughs> I use that all the time now. If I don't want to cuss in front of somebody, I'll go, don't be such a doomish. <laughs> now, he had worked with them before and knew they were not only competent, he could trust them to follow his orders. And his main directive, under no uncertain terms, they were to report their findings to him and only him. Because he bought the microscope. Well, not just that, is he didn't want it to leak to the press. About what was going on. That's probably a really you know. Good idea. 
So when Hess and Dumit started looking into where the twine came from, they let Logic take the lead. With that in mind, Logic led them straight to Stardock Lodge, right? Warren and his two handpicked deputies went to the lodge in September 1960 to meet with the kitchen manager. As it turned out, they were right to trust their instincts. Warren didn't have any, they didn't have any difficulty finding spools matching both types of twine used by the killer. Kitchen staff used them both when wrapping food. Now, from there, Dumit has asked to see the purchasing records for the lodge, specifically the kitchen. Again, it wasn't hard for them to locate the company that manufactured the cords. With all that information at hand, they went. the detectives and the attorney didn't have any doubt the murderer had taken the twine from the kitchen, which, they la- which was later used to tie two of the murder victims together. He finally had some answers. To, he finally had answers to some of the questions he'd been asking since the bodies of the women had been found. From the beginning, because of the proximity, he had a nagging suspicion the person responsible for the homicide was connected to the lodge. He also thought the person they were looking for was an employee, and if the, they weren't an employee, they were associated with the facility in some way that gave them access without raising suspicions. Now, he also decided to bring in a specialist. Warren knew that when law enforcement officials began their investigation in March, they had brought every employee in for questioning and had them submit to a polygraph exam. Now, Hold on. I don't even understand the polygraph exam. Let me tell you why, because it's not admissible in court. No, but it can give you some idea of whether people are being truthful or not. So you can follow up on those people. Because otherwise you have all these people you have to investigate individually. I suppose. You know. What about nervous test takers? See, and that's what, what I was thinking. Well, but this, the weird part is, if the results from those tests indicated all of them were being truthful in their statements, which is important to know. Well, hold on, no, but Brian, Brian brings up a good point. That's you know? true. Like, okay, if I had to do a polygraph test and I was in Portland, I could pass it. Yeah, if you were in Vancouver, they would, yeah, they would ask you your name and you'd fail. <laughs> number one in Vancouver, because the Vancouver PD hates me so much, I'm pretty sure that they would have to taser me five or six times before they ever asked me a question. He was resisting the polygraph test. Taser him again and I'll kick him. <laughs> so, yeah, man, the second one I walked in there. One more time, one more shot. we got to recharge that memory. That's oh, right. Yeah, no, totally, man. I've had so many runs with the Vancouver PD <laughs> over shit. It's not like I'm a criminal. It's just Jesus Christ. Did you know man. Scott's African-American descent and has dreadlocks? Oh, <laughs> Brian, got a story for you. So I had this Ford Focus, and then we'll get back on track. I had this Ford Focus, and it kept breaking down. Well, I broke down on a major uh, road that we have here called Mill Plain. I'm off to the side of the road. I got my flares out. Here comes a cop. He goes, you have a tow truck coming? I said, yes, yes, officer, I do. This is here in Vancouver. He goes, step out of the car, sir. I get handcuffed and put in the back of his car because I fit a description of a guy who just robbed a liquor store who was a six-foot-something black guy with dreadlocks. Now, I'm five-foot-ten, very white. And very bald. bald. And very bald. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just say it. Yeah. Scott fits the description. (laughs) No. So, but, so. False arrests are always fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So because, fantastic, man. It's fucking fantastic. I love Vancouver PD. <laughs> so because everybody passed the test, they were all cleared from the suspect list. Now he was facing new information that clearly stated one thing. Evidence collected from the crime scene was linked to the lodge. Therefore, the highly respected official wondered if the previous polygraph tests had been properly conducted or if the results were accurately interpreted. Now, in an unprecedented move, he made what could have been a controversial decision. He boldly ran his own tests. He brought in a specialist from a high-profile firm out of Chicago to conduct another round. 
Then he called in all the people who had been employed at Starved Rock within a week of when the homicide occurred and asked them to sit for the test again. He used a small cabin near the lodge to conduct the exams. The employees arrived one at a time in scheduled increments and agreed to sit for a sec- another test. It wasn't actually a second one. It was like a third or fourth one. Um, it wasn't long before they tested approximately 12 employees and each one indicated they were being truthful. Now, after a while, Warren turned to the detectives and asked if they were just wasting their time since it appeared as if they were getting the same results. Around the same time he was questioning his decision, Dumit brought in another employee, former employee. It was a guy by the name of Chester Otto, Otto Weger. And he had been a dishwasher at the lodge around the time of the murders. Now, the results of the polygraph could change the course of the case, would change the course of the case. However, there's still a question today about whether that change was for the better or for the worse, or if it was true. Now, once Chester had finished answering the polygrapher's questions, Warren looked up and noticed something he found alarming. During the other exams, nothing seemed out of the ordinary with the examiner. However, once he had finished this exam, his face looked as if he'd seen a ghost. As soon as Chester closed the door behind him when he left the cabin, the technician calmly uttered three simple words, that's your man. However, I found reports later that indicated he passed that exam too. But for some reason... They had it in their mind that he did it. Now, he, Ch- let's get a little bit into who Chester was. Now, Chester Wigger was born in 1939 in Derby, Iowa. <laughs> he hey, there idiot. you go. That explains a lot. <laughs> Being from Iowa and, and yeah. you're from Iowa. There you go. I just, I don't all like Iowa. Sense. All makes sense. All makes sense. Now, his parents, Herschel and Juanita, had six children and he was their only son. That's a so, night and day types of name because Herschel's. Kind of a black guy's name, and well, oh, Herschel is actually. Um, I've, I've I've known a few white guys named Herschel though. Right, too. I can't remember where he's. I read where he was from, and Juanita's was actually from that area. Actually, I I like the name Juanita. I mean, she's making tortillas, and I love Mexican food. So there you Doesn't go. Doesn't necessarily mean she's Hispanic. Why, why why you have to ruin my dreams? Why I don't know. No, so, number one, you cock blocked me with your mom. And then you ruined my Mexican food dreams. All right, you know what? Continue. Anyways, he was no, a, broken heart Chester was approximately two years old when the Uyghur family moved to Illinois. They settled outside of a, uh, Oglesby, just south of the Illinois River, with the Vermilion River running along its eastern border. Now, their small two-bedroom house didn't even have indoor plumbing. Since he was the only boy, his five sisters shared one room while his parents took the other. That left him sleeping in their small dining room area on a hide-a-bed sofa. Later, looking back on their childhood, his younger sister actually said, I know we were poor. Growing up, we never knew it. We were just like the other kids, we thought. Now, Herschel Weger had a seasonal job working as a painter. He also raised coon hounds as a hobby. My grandpa did, too. Does he want my coon hound? I she's wish. a fucking bed hog she and is. goddamn twat. She's been whining a lot lately. Because she's a twat, that's why. Yeah. Now, Juanita actually at one time worked at Star Rock Lodge as a housekeeper. Although his parents worked as much as they could to earn money, the Uyghurs were an authentic example of a family living off the land. Herschel hunted for the meat they ate and grew their vegetables in a substantially sized garden. Now, with five sisters, it didn't really surprise me to find out Chester and his father were actually very close. As he grew up, his father took him into the woods bordering the back of their land and taught him how to set traps to catch raccoons and mink that roamed the area. He was also taught the proper way to skin his catch and how to hang the pelts to dry. Um, And I actually, you'll see it in the blog, I went into some explanation of what uh, mink is, because some people are like, what's mink other than, you know, a coat? 
it's actually an animal. Now, in 1952, Chester was 12 or 13 when he was arrested in Oglesby and charged with statutory rape. All the incident itself is alluded to in the Illinois Prison Review Board records. The details surrounding the event have been redacted. That's been done. This was done considering the Freedom of Information Act in order to protect the names of the victims because their age, because of their age when that incident occurred, they were minors. However, Chester later said he was arrested in charge of the crime because he had an undetermined encounter with a young girl who had been raped by someone else and she had vaginal bleeding. In an effort to stop the bleeding, he did what others would do for any other non-sexual wound. He took a section of white cloth and placed it in a vagina to stop the bleeding, right? I mean, you have to remember, he's 12, 13 years old. Okay, no, it, it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. So in 1963, he actually wrote an autobiography from prison in which he talked about that incident. He said, I was told to plead guilty. I did. And I was given a pass. A closer look at the records indicates the judge just sentenced him to probation for that. Because of the way his parents raised him, he was very comfortable with nature and anything to do with the outdoors. So, in fact, since his family lived nearby and his mother once worked at the lodge, he was extremely familiar with the trails of St. Louis Canyon. Ever since he was a young boy, whenever he walked the nature trails, he felt free and was overcome with a sense of peace. Almost as, he says almost as if he were walking in the presence of God himself. Now, at the time, Chester agreed to take another polygraph test. He was 21 years old. Reports indicate he was married with two children and, a, and he was small in stature. That's important to remember. He was employed at the Starbrook Lodge in the summer of 1960. However, however, he submitted his resignation stating he intended to join his father in a house painting business. Now, Detective Dumit recalled coming across Chester's name in a previous report filed with the police. However, when all was said and done, he never made an impression with the authorities. After the polygrapher told the state's attorney and county detectives he thought Chester was their culprit, Warren focused their intention on him. Now, interesting enough, Chester was eager to cooperate with, the, with Warren and the detectives in any way he could. However, unlike other serial killers we have encountered, he never actively tried to integrate himself in the investigation. When he was asked to give the authorities a part of his jacket, which was made of buckskin because it had, quote, dark stains, the detectives considered it suspicious and they wanted to analyze it further. Now, we all know that suede and buckskin is going to absorb, you know, blood. So the dark stains they found were just two spots. That's important to know. So after it went through the forensic testing that they had available, the lab determined the stain was human blood. Keep in mind, back in 1960, even though they could positively identify the blood belonged to a human, they could not match blood type or DNA to any individual. Now, in order to cover their, his bases, Warren asked Chester to take a third test. Chester didn't hesitate to comply. In fact, according to reports, law enforcement officials had him take a series of exams and results indicated he was being, um, that this time he was actually, they said that he was deceptive in that one. Now, as soon as Warren received the lab report indicating the suspicious stain on Chester's jacket was human blood, the attorney asked the Illinois police, police to place him under 24-hour surveillance. Confident his primary suspect was being watched, Warren Hess and Dumit started digging further into his history. They also began reviewing other assault cases that could have potentially resulted in murder to see if they could link him 
link them to Chester. That's when Dumit stumbled upon something he thought deserved more attention. Apparently in 1959, approximately one mile from Starved Rock, a young woman reported she had been a victim of rape and robbery. Now, Dumit took the case to Warren, and the attorney pr- approved his request to investigate further. According to reports, the detective contacted the woman and arranged for a face-to-face meeting. He arrived with a stack of mugshots and asked her to go through them, and he later stated that she slowly went through each one until she came across Chester's, at which point she started screaming. Now, this is just Dumit's report. This isn't, you know, nobody else witnessed this. Now... Then politics got in the way. Although Warren was presented with a positive eyewitness investiga- in the investigation, which was enough to issue a warrant, politics got in the way, and he had to hold off on taking the next step. He suddenly found himself caught, caught in a new dilemma. Now, if you recall at the beginning, I said that, you know, the Starved Rock murders took place the same year Warren was up for re-election. However, he put the majority of his time and effort into the case, as he should have, so he focused little attention on his re-election care campaign so if he had gone forward and arrested uh, and arrested and charged chester for rape and murder he would face more criticism and not only from the press if the case went all the way to trial the defense team could focus their strategy on convincing the jury the arrest was only made as a publicity stunt in other words they could claim that he was in a hurry to make an arrest so he could convince the public he was worthy of the position right now Rather than take the risk of jeopardizing his career, he instead decided his best course was to keep Chester under surveillance until after the election. Even though Warren hardly put any effort into his election campaign, he tried to, he, he, he was confident he would beat his opponent based on his past success as an attorney. After all, in the eight years since he had been elected into office, he had already made a significant impact in and lowering the prostitution and gambling rates. See, picking on the hookers again. Jesus Christ, <laughs> man. Dude, attorney guys, leave the goddamn hookers alone for fuck's sakes, man. Yeah. Now, you're so dumb. Standing up for the I'm standing up for your people, okay? okay. <laughs> Shut up. I hate you. Now, Warren's opponent based his campaign on the lack of progress and alleged bungling of the Starbuck murder investigation. In the end, 60,000 county residents turned in their ballots for election, and Warren's opponent won by 3,500 votes. I know. That's a lot. Now, although Warren was upset from losing the election. (laughs) You think? Well, more than half the people sit there and go, you know what? Fuck right off. We don't want you here anymore. 60,000 and 3,500. That's not half. Oh, I thought, I thought you said. Oh, wait. Yes, six, it is. No, it's not. I thought you said 6,500. No, 60,000. Oh. Now, um, uh, now, since Warren was obviously upset because he lost the election, he wasn't out of office yet. So he was going to make the most out of his remaining time and press on with the investigation. So when it came to the evidence he had against Ch- Chester, it was barely circumstantial. Even so, he was granted an arrest, an arrest warrant for Chester for the 1959 case. With the warrant in hand, Dumit and Hess were ordered to pick him up. However, there's one final thing they had to go over. He was convinced that when Chester was faced with the evidence, circumstantial or not, he would confess to raping the woman. And if all went well, he just might confess to the Stardock murders. For that reason, he wanted to make sure Hess and Dumit, Dumit <laughs> didn't begin the interrogation by questioning him about the murders. So on November 16th, 1960, Dumit and Hess went to Chester's apartment to pick him up. Now, they told him they were taking him back to the courthouse to answer some questions. They never mentioned they had a warrant for his arrest. This is important. 
down at the station, he was placed in a lineup and questioned about the 1959 robbery and rape in Deer Park. Now, I saw the lineup. The woman described her attacker as a light-haired, kind of hefty male, young. He was the only young one in the, in the lineup. He had dark hair, and all the other men were kind of very old, kind of dingy-looking, and balding. And you said he was a slight guy. He was a small yeah, dude. Yeah, he was small in stature. He wasn't hefty at all. Line him up for a photo ID with a bunch of seniors? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're going to go to the old folks home and grab all the suspects. I mean, I saw some of them, and it's like they no way looked young or, you know, had blonde hair, none of that. Now, keep in mind, Warren. Conrad, we need to borrow you for a minute. <laughs> so keep in I mind. I pooped my pants. <laughs> You're so stupid. Now, keep in mind, Warren and his detectives had little to go on in the murder investigation. They didn't have any physical evidence that linked Chester directly to the murders. All they had was twine from the lodge's kitchen where he happened to work. Now, however, he wasn't the only employee who worked or had access to the kitchen. The three officials also didn't have anyone who said they saw Chester in the canyon that night, nor could they definitively place him there at the time of the murders. In other words, everything they had could barely be considered circumstantial with a a stretch of the imagination. However, that didn't seem to matter to the three men. They kept him in the interrogation room at the courthouse for over eight hours. They repeatedly asked him question after question, and he continued to say he was innocent. I wonder if they started off with... Once upon a twine. <laughs> You're so stupid. Asking for a friend. Just asking for a friend. I don't even know what to do with you half the time. Oh, that's pretty easy. That's pretty easy. Quit working on Sandy Boulevard. Just come to work every day. I hate you. That'd be kind of nice. I mean, I get tired of whenever I'm, I have to be out in that area. And it's, oh, there's Tammy going into that fucking hotel hotel I again. hate you. <laughs> Handing the out coupons. Time, I'm not even ever on Sandy. Oh, did you move up to like 82nd or Birdside or something? How often? I'm only on Burnside when we go to Eastside Bar and Grill. I don't go to that area at all. Burnside's not on East... Uh, no, uh, not Burnside, but 82nd. 82nd. Yeah. yeah. So Pretty sure I saw you on Watt and 80 out near me. Hey, now. Exactly. <laughs> See, she gets around, man. And right now she's handing out two for coupons, two for one, so uh, that's disturbing. Shut up. Hell of a deal. <laughs> According to re- handing out punch cards, hey, I hate yeah, next one's free. No, he's saying that because I ha- I found out that I might have to have surgery on my wrist, and he's like being a dick about it. So, according to reports, during the controversial interrogation process, Dumit told Chester if he didn't confess to the murders, he'd receive the electric chair and quote ride the thunderbolt. It was at that time they finally served him the arrest warrant and charged him with murder. Even then, he said he was innocent. The questioning went on past midnight. At no time did they tell him he was under arrest, read him his rights, or ask if he wanted an attorney. But I'll get into that later. Actually, I'll get into that in part two. Finally, right before 2 a.m. on November 17th, he was so exhausted, he stopped talking in mid-sentence and looked at them and said he wanted to see his family. Now, detectives ordered a patrol unit to go pick up Herschel and Juanita and return them to the courthouse. Once they arrived, they were ushered into the room. Now, Detective Hess gave his official statement the next day in which he stated when Bill stepped out of the, out of the back room in the state's office, attorney's office to show Mr. and Mrs. Weger to the door so they could go home, I could see that something was bothering Chester. I said, Chester, why don't you tell me about it? There are just the two of us here. Just tell me. Just the two and then of us. He said, <laughs> Chester said, all right, I did it. I got scared. I tried to grab their pocketbook. They fought 
and I hit them. This is important. I was, it was later speculated that the pocketbook was actually the camera. And apparently, within minutes of his alleged telling Hess he committed the murder, the authorities transcribed his confession and had him sign it. Official reports indicate he was asked why he had moved the bodies from the base of the canyon and placed them under the rock ledge. He said that after he murdered the women, he saw a low-flying airplane circling overhead. Fearing it was the state police department, he moved the victims so they couldn't easily be spotted by the aircraft. A couple of days after his confession, detectives were able to confirm with the police that the presence of the plane on that day and the time he said it was there. And that corroboration came from the pilot's logbook and statements verifying the flight path. Now, for several days after Chester gave his confession, he repeated his confession multiple times. On one occasion, the authorities took him out to the canyon and with the media as an audience, he reenacted the crime. Until then, he had yet to meet with his court-appointed attorney. However, after their first meeting, he recanted his confession and again stated he had nothing to do with the murders. Um, he said during his interrogation, Hessen Dumit pulled a gun and threatened him into making the confession. It was coerced and the detectives fed him information, including the details about the airplane. According to him, he had never left Oglesby on the day of the murder. Now, jury selection in Chester's trial began in mid-January and lasted two weeks before the official proceedings began on January 20th. And that's why I don't go to fucking jury duty. <laughs> you just ignore your summons. Well, they're only going to pay me 50 bucks a day, and I make substantially more than that. I, I, matter of fact, everybody, even minimum wage people, make more than 50 bucks a goddamn mm-hmm. day. Jesus Christ. Actually, this, the county doesn't pay 50 bucks. You paid when you went to jury duty? Oh yeah, yeah. no, they, they they pay us like fifty bucks a oh, day. Oh no, only federal pays you fifty. County only pays you like twenty some. What? Yeah. Oh, they can kiss my ass. Yeah, and I don't even know if they reimburse for gas, but they might. No, my bare minimum is five. You like have to actually serve to get paid? I got nothing when I go. No <laughs> shit. If you're a state or federal right. employee, you don't get paid. But yeah, it's I'm not weird. a state or federal employee. I hate this place. Why would I work for it? <laughs> no shit, huh? <laughs> You know, and here's my theory, because we've got to wrap this one up because uh, Keith Jesperson's going to call in. Here's my theory on jury duty. Like, seriously, why the fuck would somebody want somebody like me on a jury that doesn't want to be there, who has a foul mouth? You know, but pick people that want to be in jury duty. You Some know, people do that shit. if you even went and you'd be dismissed yeah. within minutes. I would, I would do it on purpose. I would stand up and go, no, I don't care who he is, white, black, cock, yeah, it doesn't matter. He's he guilty. He's if you're president, he's guilty. <laughs> and I would say the most racist shit on the planet to get kicked out. Yeah, no. Now, Robert Richardson was the new state's attorney. He was the lead prosecutor. I only have this small section, then I'm done. Now, the news, and he was the lead prosecutor. Now, attorney Anthony Racuglia sat second chair for the prosecution. In an interesting twist, neither of them had ever been involved in a murder case before Chester's trial. No murder. Yeah. For that reason, Judge Leonard Hoffman suggested they appoint Harlan Warren as a special prosecutor for that case only. However, because Richard had been so critical of how Warren handled the case during the election, he rejected the judge's suggestion, which is kind of important, too. Now, after looking at all their options, Richardson and Recuglia decided it would be best for their case to move forward on only one murder charge. The reason for their controversial decision is simple. We've talked about it before. Should this trial end in a mistrial or acquittal, they could charge and try Chester for the other two murders. Right. Now, they also argued the case in favor of the death penalty. 
after almost one year to the date of the triple <coughs> homicide at Starved Rock State Park, the jury returned with their verdict on March 3rd, 1961, which all was also the day he turned 22. The jury declared happy birthday, right? <laughs> now the jury declared him guilty of murder and sentenced him to life in prison. Once Judge Hoffman thanked the jury for their service and dismissed them, the reporters swarmed the lobby to ask questions. Now, first and foremost, the media wanted to know if the jury realized under Illinois law at the time that Chester would be eligible for parole after only 10 years. From the look of surprise on the faces of the jury members, it was obvious they weren't aware of the possibility. A few jurors even stated that had they known Chester would be eligible for parole, they would have voted in favor of the death penalty. So the prosecution's inexperience with capital cases and the jury's ignorance of the state of Illinois law saved Chester's life. Had Richardson and Rikugli accepted the judge's recommendation to bring Warren in as special prosecutor, chances are he would have properly instructed the jury about their, what their decision for, for or against the death penalty would mean in the long run. Now, that's the end of part one. In part two, I'm going to go into the legal significance of Chester's case because there's a lot of legal significance here that you know kind of argues in favor of his innocence. Ah, sweet, man. Yeah. Hey, Brian, thanks for joining us, man. Hopefully we get you on the show some more. <laughs> Hey, yeah! Uh, thanks for having me, guys. It was a lot of fun. I'm sorry, I was sorry, I was quiet as I was. I just trying to trying to keep my work's noise down for you. Oh, oh my god, you did it! Oh, it's and, all good, and I wanted to let you know that I lost my V card back in the early '90s in Iowa, so you might want to look there <laughs> to a goat. <laughs> no, probably lost to the yeah, goat. He was a freshman. I was a sophomore. <laughs> I got a better heading now. <laughs> it was it was actually in the outskirts of Storm Lake. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the dark and stormy night. Outskirts of Storm Lake. Yeah, Storm Got Lake, it. Iowa. <laughs> oh my God. All right, Brian. Hey man, we'll talk to you later, buddy. All right, bud. Thanks for having me. You're <laughs> Thanks welcome. For Thanks on. for being on. Uh, bye bye. Of course, anytime. Bye. <laughs> All right, boys and girls, remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. This show's copyrighted 2022 by Twisted 23. Blue. 23. Ah, God damn it. And we're four months. We're into spring. I, I know. I don't know the goddamn fucking year anymore. Moron. Jesus fucking Christ. This show's copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. And remember... If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast, they're lying, thieving bastards. bastards. We'll see you guys and talk to y'all later. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.